In this episode, Dr. Kashi talks about the relationship between body mass, activity, and eating, and how they actually complement each other instead of acting like adversaries. Listen as the good doctor discusses the importance of empirical substantiation and biological conservation of metabolic phenotypes. <gasps> Roll the intro! Hello, and welcome to <sighs> Coffee with Cashy. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy, and in this lesson, I prove that there's actually something in the cup. See? <sighs> Empirical substantiation is the key to philosophical integration. Just saying. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. Today's lesson continues on with Sugar's Three Musketeers. And again, the background is bare to make sure thinking caps and concentrating antenna are focused. Focused. Okay. Very important. Here's what you're learning. Biological conservation of metabolic phenotypes. Fancy stuff. It's cool. It's all good. <laughs> stuff, stuff is the same between animals in a lot of cases. The beginnings of the relationship. The only love triangle that works out in the end. The relationship between body mass and activity and eating and their complementary roles rather than the tragic adversarial roles people give these things. Man, with one wins, then they all lose. How about them apples, right? Right, yikes. And then the, again... The relationship between the body mass activity and eating and then the complementary rather than adversarial roles between food and activity and body mass. That reminds me all this talk about sugar and moving around and health and fat loss and sanity and all that cool stuff. Dr. Cash's Transformation Challenge is coming up at smartpeoplecomehere.com in a few weeks. So if you're interested in having a body that looks as good as it works and works as good as it looks... Well, then everyone here gets first dibs. Everyone here in this group watching these lessons gets first dibs before Dr. Cashy releases it to the public and it fills up, because it will. That's smartpeoplecomehere.com. Okay, a little bit of background here. Premise. Being active substantially and reproducibly affects appetite in the lab and in the real world. There are few things that accomplish that, okay? It is also cool enough a major modifiable physiological determinant of appetite. Okay, along with sleep. That's another big one. And it, this is in a typical person's food and eating scenario, which a scientist calls ad libitum, or in context, unlimited access to food. So if you have unlimited access to food, then what are the determining factors of intake? Okay, uh, aside from emotional disturbance, which we cover in a lot of other stuff. For that reason, being active affects both sides of the energy balance equation. It is quite obvious that moving your body will expend energy. Energy out. This is the part people tend to obsess over, okay? burning calories. Uh, however, in a trade secret hidden about as effectively as the Grand Canyon, moving your body also regulates energy in on a physiological level, as well as a logistical and psychological level, but on a physiological level too. A bunch of nerds saw this relationship eons ago. The translation of one of Aristotle's writings on the generation of animals, written thousands of years ago, published by the Harvard University Press about 80 years ago, Described the fundamental traits of animals, one of those fundamental traits being moving around. Why? So that they could get stuff to eat. Imagine that, okay? He even paraphrased 
Aristotle, that is, paraphrase, goes on to make a cheeky comparison to the houseplant. Okay, now they live a luxurious life of acquiring its energy by being well a potted plant, and so the necessity of them to move around uh, like this is far less. Okay, Hippocrates also noted some issues when people ate like a locomotive animal and then acted like a potted plant. And then rigorous substantiation of these literally age-old observations started rolling in about 100 years ago. So people, you know, it's intuitive, you see, but what's actually happening, uh, that's like the physiological stuff, the behavioral stuff, all those measurements started coming in a little more rigorously about 100 years ago and then started solidifying in the 50s. Uh, there are many bricks in the wall observing a what's called a curvilinear relationship between regular activity, regulated body weight, and regulated consumption of metabolic fuel across animal species. This is important. This, this sort of phenotypical evolutionary behavioral conservation between species is pretty important. Uh, this interspecies fancy word homology of how activity regulates food consumption makes sense considering the fundamental requirements of living of a locomotive animal. In other words, this is conserved evolutionarily and therefore genetically for good reasons, okay? Fancy graph time. Small t, little t. Okay, there's a lot going on here, but we're going to go over it over the next few lessons, so it's cool. Right now, we're focusing mostly on whoop, this part here, okay? That part. This is a super fancy pictograph representing that curvy linear relationship with, depending on how granular you want to get, two major inflection points. These inflection points are, are denoted here and here. Now, what exactly is an inflection point? An inflection point is a fancy math word describing the change of concavity of a function, and, it's, and it is useful from a modeling standpoint, uh, not this sort of modeling standpoint, although sometimes, uh, from a modeling standpoint, to determine relationships, okay? Now, state that one more time. Uh, this inflection point is a fancy math word describing the concavity of a function, and it is useful from a modeling standpoint to determine local extremes. So if we're looking from here to here, if there's an inflection point, then that means there's probably an extreme, and then, then it helps you figure out where the extreme is in that area you are looking. And, and this is important, <laughs> okay? Now we'll get into more practical stuff now. Uh, more colloquially, it's been appropriated to describe when something that is apparently regular, or like this is regular, then it turns left, okay? Apparently regular, but makes a relatively obvious change. The curvilinear relationship between being active and eating, so being active is here, this x-axis is being active, okay? Whoopsies between being active and eating, essentially, okay? Now, there are two of these inflection points. There's two of these tipping points. I guess you can also use that sort of language, too. Now, these two major inflection points means there are three major categories. So every time the graph makes a change in direction, then it puts you into, essentially, a new physiological state. Again, this is all going to get covered in the next few lessons, so I understand we're busting out the fancy terms now to get them out of the way, okay? Essentially, if you cut one thing twice, you have three pieces. Hopefully that makes sense. Congratulations on your A-plus in Dr. Cassie's crash course in mathematical modeling of biological systems. Okay? So the three major categories are as follows. 
One, with the minimum amount of activity possible, you're essentially a potted plant. When you get to more reasonable levels of activity regularly, you are active on purpose and with purpose. And then eventually you can go super crazy, which is essentially just the overkill category of activity. So left and right here, this big box represents how much activity you are performing, right? Left and right, less and more. Now, when a person's activity is below the first inflection point, so if your activity is on the left side here, then you can see how that ends up reflecting in your food and your body weight in an ad libitum setting. Now, when a person's activity is below the first inflection point, lovingly designated as potted plant, food and eating, they become divorced from activity. Like normally activity will regulate food and eating. When activity is low enough, they, they, they become separate from each other. And that causes some issues. This person needs more activity to regulate their dietary patterns, both physiologically, the signals within their body, and logistically, how you plan your day. Both of those end up becoming very important, okay? Now when food and eating are divorced from activity, a major regulating factor in consumption, this practically always results in regularly eating more than enough than you need, than you conditionally need to sustain, okay? Uh, in an ad libitum or unlimited food setting. Now when this happens, the nutrient cycling, all that stuff that, that you learned about in the previous lessons, between the liver and the brain and the muscles and the sugars and the three musketeers, right? Those three organs, it slows to a crawl. Okay, and that nutrient cycling, that nutrient partitioning, the emptying and the filling back up, that's what's required to be metabolically healthy. That stuff starts to get slow and ends up backing up. Now, consistently getting more than enough than you need, conditionally need to sustain, for long enough, in combination with being a potted plant, is bad news bears for metabolic health. Now, in the previous lessons, you learned that activity cultivates nutrient partitioning. This is a fancy term for transporting stuff and then storing stuff in the right places. Now, during conditions of activity deficiency, where a person is a potted plant, when they're a potted plant, their nutrient partitioning capabilities, the ability to, to transport stuff and store it in the right place, starts getting ha hamstrung and eventually handicapped. And then people start storing stuff in the wrong places, like between their organs and in their organs and in the circulatory system, literally gumming up the works. <laughs> Being active, in short, helps tell the body where to put the food when you eat it. Storing stuff in the wrong places for long enough, it breaks up the three musketeers. The, the, the brain, the muscles, and the liver, they eventually start, they, they eventually get a messy divorce, really. And, and it end, that ends up manifesting as obesity, <laughs> couch-related conditions like diabetes, heart disease, etc. Now, discombobulating this connection between the brain and the muscles and the liver, sugar three musketeers, on top of being heavier as a person, starts a vicious cycle. Now, the heavier and more disconnected, the heavier a person is and the more disconnected their brain, muscles, and liver are, the more appetizing it becomes, pun intended, to be a potted plant. See how that gets kind of funkified? Starts getting real funkified. Technically speaking, now as a heavier person, literally everything takes more work. Before you know it, you start wearing slip-on shoes before, because bending over sucks so much. Now, adding insult to injury, this slow but practically sure decline in doing stuff also means a sh slow but practically sure decline in 
muscles. That's a problem. This is called sarcopenic obesity. This is where people get fatter, and as they start getting fatter, they start doing less, and then they have less muscles. And this ends up becoming a really crappy combination. They start losing what little muscles they have, which further destroys the communication capacity between sugars, three musketeers, the brain, the liver, and the muscles. So even if people eat the same amount every day, which people pretty much do, except you know on certain days that don't count, 80-20, right? Over time, activity goes down, which means proportionally speaking, they're eating more. So even if you're eating the same amount every day, if activity slowly declines and proportionally speaking, the amount you're eating goes up, which means then when body weight goes up, it takes more work, activity then goes down again, then body weight goes up again, and then muscle mass starts going down too, and yikes. Okay. Now this further divorces the brain and the muscles and the liver, both in terms of literal obstacles, you got stuff in the way, stuff stored in the wrong place, and communication obstacles because it handicaps their hormonal communications. The most famous communication breakdown being with insulin. Now throw in some holidays and some birthdays where gratuitous overeating is the cultural expectation and 15 years later that overfat, hypothyroid, pre-diabetic person looks in the mirror and says, well, you know, Everybody knows your metabolism slows down after insert arbitrarily specific number here, like 35. Uh, you see how pernicious that is? It feels like it's overnight, but that's just because people choose to more or less ignore it until it goes beyond their frustration tolerance. And it goes beyond their frustration tolerance typically because their self-esteem becomes damaged, either because they got rejected by, by people or things significant to them, or because their body starts rejecting and rejecting it, its own membership to the not dying fan club. And that's scary. And then your frustration tolerance gets really low. Okay, then it becomes a problem, which is good. It's good. It becomes a problem if it's if it's a big enough, if it catches your attention enough to change it. That's the point. Now, if it becomes too much of a problem, you become overwhelmed and flip out about it. That's another monster. Okay, but as soon as it becomes a problem, what ends up happening? It inevitably gets compared to, well, this is a problem now. What was life like when this problem was gone? When, when everything was perfect or whatever? Well, you see that differential and it's like, whoosh, holy crap, right? You see that massive difference. They see that massive difference and then they scramble tragically to craft a story to salvage their sanity. And most of the time, that sort of story ends up handicapping their ability to change because preserving the sanity is, is a priority in everyday life, <laughs> as well it should be, okay? All the while, the vicious cycle of gaining more and doing less strains sugar's three musketeers discombobulating their relationship, and then eventually they get a bitter divorce for the same reasons people do. Their communication sucks. Except when the three musketeers divorce, it ends in things like organ failure, till death do they part, for sure. And this is why if two populations get exceedingly fat at the same rate, but one population is active and the other population was a potted plant, the active population, even though they're just as fat, they'll store their fat in different places. Why? Because of activities impact on, again, nutrient partitioning, the transport and storage of nutrients, and their hormone sensitivity, the communication between the organs. Even though they're just as fat in total, like the amount of fat they have, they store their fat differently and are therefore metabolically healthier. They have more cyclical exchanges of nutrients between the brain, the muscles, and the liver. In this case, the nutrients are sugar. 
and relatively speaking, better looking bodies because the fat gets stored in different places, even though they're just as fat. So they have better looking bodies, they are metabolically healthier, and they're just as fat, which is kind of cool, all right? So this begs the question. Actually, one more point. Over the same period of time, they would, they would be eating metric truckloads more food, more likely sugar, uh, to become just as fat. So there's also that too. There's this practical relationship between like how much more food are these other people eating to get just as fat over the same period of time? And the answer is metric truckloads more food. Okay, but you learned about that in greater detail in previous lessons, so moving on there. Anyway, this ends up begging the question, what happens when you bring activity back after years of being a potted plant and losing muscle mass and gaining fat mass, causing a rift between the three musketeers? Because now they're physically and hormonally and, and plumbingly handicapped. Okay, that's an interesting question. And the answer is way different than you might think it is. And the chances are you already got the gist of it. Okay, activity is an inferior avenue to lose body fat and a superior avenue to improve metabolic health. Now, food and eating is a superior avenue to lose body fat and an inferior avenue to improve metabolic health. Literally, feed one to support the other. They have a comp, like activity and food and eating have a complementary relationship rather than the tragic adversarial relationship where one cancels out the other, like atoning for your freaking donut sins here. Okay, they have a complementary relationship. Now the next lesson, next lesson goes into a little bit more detail about why that works and these fun inflection points, okay, will come back into action. You'll, you'll get a little bit more of a description of, of what this big fancy graph means. So here's what you learned, okay? You learned about the, the biological conservation of metabolic phenotypes, the fancy thing for, right, a lot of different animals and humans exhibit the same sorts of behaviors in ad libitum settings, physiologically speaking, okay, the way that they act depending on their physiology, and the beginnings of the relationship between body mass activity and eating, and then the complementary rather than adversarial roles they all have, okay? Thank you so much for learning. Stay rational. Until next time. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Kashi is out! <laughs>